This is ScienceWise, Questions at the Confluence of Science and Ethics, a podcast produced in conjunction with the Nobel Conference at Gustavus Adolphus College. I'm your host, Lisa Heldke, Director of the Nobel Conference and Professor of Philosophy at Gustavus. This fall's conference is taking place virtually on October 6th and 7th, 2020. You can find details about how to participate on the Gustavus website. The theme of the 2020 conference is Cancer in the Age of Biotechnology, and will focus on the spectacular successes being realized by these new biologically derived drugs, and also on the challenges that many persons with cancer face in trying to access treatment. Today's guest, Dr. Carl June, will be one of the seven main presenters at the conference. Dr. June has been at the center of the creation of the first so-called CAR-T therapy that was approved for use with cancer patients, in this case, persons with certain forms of leukemia. Chimeric antigen receptor theory, or therapy rather, also known as CAR-T therapy, is a revolutionary treatment that acts by turning one's own immune system against the cancer cells in your body while leaving healthy tissue unharmed. In CAR-T therapy, existing T cells are modified to enable them to target certain unique proteins that exist only on the surface of the cancer cell. In 2017, the first such gene therapy was approved for use by the FDA, called Tisagenlucel, or Kimria, Kimria. The drug was developed starting in 2010 in the laboratory of Dr. June at the University of Pennsylvania. The therapy is currently being used to treat acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, as well as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL. Another form of cancer, uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, is presently in the experimental phase. Trials have also begun for other types of cancer, including blood, pancreatic, and brain cancers. Carl June began studying T-cells during advanced training in bone marrow transplantation at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. There, he researched the ways in which those cells can be altered by different molecules by studying their responses to to an immune protein. Subsequently, conditions led him to turn his T-cell research to the study of HIV, developing a procedure for multiplying T-cells in the lab and then reintroducing them into the body of a person living with the compromised immune system system that is an effect of HIV-AIDS. The procedure is still in use today. June returned to the study of cancer in part as a result of his first wife's cancer diagnosis. She unfortunately passed away in 2001. His work on HIV continued to inform his work on cancer. He reports, quote, for me, it was very useful to learn about virology and HIV. If you're only in one field, you tend to get isolated, but with multidisciplinary interactions, it's easier to find new steps that haven't even been thought about, rather than just incremental steps. June's ability to combine insights from many disciplines led one of his colleagues to praise his work style as improvisational. His multidisciplinary approach has, in recent months, brought him to explore using insights from CAR T cell research to develop treatments that can address hyperinflammatory responses in persons with COVID 19. Carl June is the Richard W. Vague Professor in Immunotherapy at the Abramson Cancer Center, University of Pennsylvania, Director of the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies at the Perlman School of Medicine and director of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy at the University of Pennsylvania. A graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, he received his MD from Baylor College of Medicine. He was elected to membership in the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, and companion to the National Academies of Science and Engineering. Among his many awards is the Paul Ehrlich and Ludwig Darmstadter Award for Investigations in Medicine, and Time Magazine named him one of the 100 Most Influential People of the Year in 2018 for his work on CAR-T therapy. Welcome to ScienceWise, Dr. June. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Halke. Uh, so, um, I'd like to start with a question that I ask everyone, uh, which is, as you know from our advanced literature, the Nobel Conference audience, um, usually live, this year not, uh, is really unusual in its breadth in age and also in education. We have everyone from high schoolers to very senior elders in, in attendance, and we also have everyone from people taking their first lab science 
class to people who might be PhDs in um, molecular biology, all present in the same room, and you have to talk to all of them. So I think if you were going to do an elevator speech to a representative sampling of this group, it would have to be a freight elevator. So if you were on this freight elevator, uh, what would you tell them that you do? What do you, how would you describe your work? Um, and maybe particularly your CAR-T work, but in general. Sure. Um, uh, you know, that's a great question. I think, you know, uh, the lay public learned about the immune system initially, um, you know, when I was beginning my science training uh, because of AIDS, the HIV AIDS epidemic yeah. taught the public that we really need an immune system or you die without it. Um, and that, in fact, because the AIDS virus kills T cells, that's when the lay public first learned that the major um, coordinator or, if you will, the conductor of the orchestra of our immune system is um, T cells. And uh, so at the heart of what I do for cancer therapy, it's making T cells do their job better. Um, mm. And T cells evolved. You know, if you look at Charles Darwin and how things evolved. Um, they first were evident in as fish came out, jodfish. That's when um, uh, organisms developed T cells, which uh, evolved actually to kill viruses. So viruses are, as we know now with COVID and HIV, they're an infection or basically a parasite that goes inside our cells. And T cells have the amazing ability to find and sniff out infected cells and kill them. Um, and so what we do is repurpose our T cells that may say exist in our body to fight flu or now COVID. We can take those T cells and redirect them to kill cancer cells in a very specific and potent way. Hmm. That's a great, great description. And I love the thinking about T cells as the, the conductors of the orchestra, as you put it. Um, now, uh, am I right that CAR T cells can work to address cancer only because there are unique, is it right, proteins on the outside of the cell, the unique antigens that only only a cancer cell will have? Is that how CAR T kind of does its work? Yeah, so let me go into this. Um, right. We have two basic forms of our immune system that I mentioned fish developed. One are called B cells. Uh, okay. And the other are T cells. So uh, a B cell stands for bursa, which is a sac in a chicken. And the B cell makes antibodies. And we all know antibodies, you know, um, we get those after vaccines. Um, and an antibody okay. works to bind to uh, proteins that are on the outside of cells or even in floating around in our blood. T cells, as I mentioned, kill uh, are able to, through a very complex mechanism, s sniff out and tell if a cell is infected with a virus and then kill it. So they're complementary. They see a different okay. universe. The B cell sees extracellular pathogens and the T cell sees intracellular pathogens. So a chimera, as you would know from Greek, Greece, you know, there's a Greek mythology of a three, um, a, a species made out of three animals you know it was um the uh, uh the head and body and a tail of a snake um uh, a goat and a lion and mm -hmm. a chimeric antigen receptor which is car chimeric antigen receptor which is where we get the word car t-cell is a chimera between a b-cell and a t-cell so, and that is the, the, what we do is use molecular biology to graft on the antibody part that the B cell makes into a T cell. So now the T cell for the first time can see things on the outside of a cell instead of just on the inside. And then we get to what you said, which is cancer cells do have specific molecules. And then now we, what we do is make and instruct the CAR T cell to be able to kill any cell that has that target of choice that we have uh, designed into it. And the thing, I mean, one of the things that this cancer conference has been emphasizing that, and that I've been learning about for the last two years is that 
that's what makes these treatments so unique, right? This isn't just like another uh, chemotherapy. It's this capacity to particularly target cells. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah. So, you know, when we, there was no treatment of cancer other than, you know, surgery um, and then radiation in the 1920s and 30s from Marie Curie's work. But there's, those are nonspecific. I mean, the surgery can cut it out, but if it's already spread, surgery doesn't work. And radiation has big side effects. And then in the 1950s, because that radiation actually causes later on, causes cancer all by itself. Cancer. So in the 50s, then chemotherapy was developed and it's a cellular poison. And there's just a very small razor's difference between killing the cancer cell and the um, normal cells. And so that's the problem with chemotherapy is it, you, you, you don't get anything without a lot of toxicity. Um, and, um, uh, so that's where now CAR T cells and now other co new kinds of immunotherapy are for the first time specific, um, in many ways. Um, and, and then there's other distinctions, but, um, you know, it goes specifically after the cells you want and it doesn't not okay. specifically. So for instance, the first people we've treated now with CAR T cells appear to be cured, um, and they have really no long-term side effects other than one that we'll talk about later called B-cell aplasia. Okay. Uh, that's an astonishing, astonishing thing. Now, another thing that I, uh, I think that I understand uh, is that CAR-T is a living drug in the sense that it's whatever you inject, when you inject these modified T cells, uh, they continue in the body. Am I... Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's another big paradigm shift. So, you know, the chemotherapy that we talked about is, is something just like, you know, high blood pressure medicines that you would take. You take it and then it gets metabolized and goes away. And so you have to take it recursively. Um, and with CAR T cells, what they do is, you know, you, the T cell, they start, as I mentioned, from normal T cells in your body. We take them out and over a period of about a week, use genetic engineering to introduce that CAR molecule, that chimeric antibody. And then the cells are just literally given back like a blood transfusion back to the patient. And what they do is they then take root and can divide and multiply. Um, and, and the multiplication factor can be amazing. So just a little bit of Wikipedia, uh, a kilogram of tumor if you look it up, is about 10 to the 12th cells. That's a thousand billion. Um, mm -hmm. And our first patients had literally kilograms of tumor. Um, mm -hmm. So pounds and pounds of tumor. And we infused around 100 million T cells into them. And we could show that they actually multiplied thousands and thousands of times in the patient's body to where they themselves, the CAR T cells became a thousand billion cells. So basically you had an army that was equivalent in numbers to what the enemy was, which is the cancer. Wow. So wow. that's the first time that wow. drugs didn't just go away when you gave them, but they actually multiplied. And then what happens is if, if they're successful and they, the tumor goes away, what happens is the CAR T cells then just go dormant and they stay on patrol to look for uh, recurrent tumor. And the first patient we treated was in the summer of 2010. And he just went through his 10 year anniversary now. And he still wow. has CAR T cells and he is leukemia free. Amazing, amazing. This is a really elementary question, but uh, does each cell only have the capacity to kill one cancer cell or are they, are they repeat killers? So that's a really good question. And the answer is both. So. In that, um, so we, we say they are cellular, serial killers in that um, we can show in a laboratory, it's really hard to measure it in a patient, but in a laboratory, one cancer cell can go around and basically attack like, like Pac-Man and maybe kill five different tumor cells. And then what happens is the cancer cell makes daughter, I mean, the CAR T cell makes daughter CAR T cells. So, and it goes by exponential numbers. So one CAR T cell makes two, and then two makes four. So it's two to the two, two to the third, two to the fourth. Mm. So after four divisions, you have 16 CAR cells. Mm. 
and each of wow. them could kill up to five. Uh, so you can see it's exponential. Wow. And wow. then what they do is they have this homeostatic factor where they then, you know, if, if the tumor goes away, they then go back basically on patrol and then just hang around looking um, in case cancer comes back. Now, that's a feature of the natural immune system. So mm -hmm. if, if you sure. have a good vaccine, which we're all hoping for, for instance, with COVID um, or a natural infection, for instance, if you get chickenpox as a kid, it's very likely you will never get it, at least for 50 years. So that, and the reason that is, is that, that you made T cells after the infection and they hang around on patrol and, and go, go after the chickenpox virus if you ever get exposed to it again. So, so that's CAR T cells fortunately mimic that ability of um, natural T cells to be very long lived. Amazing, amazing. Now, uh, the HIV virus also plays a role here. Is that right? That is, you use the virus as a delivery yeah. system? So HIV, as I mentioned, you know, it was an epidemic, not a pandemic, but it was an epidemic beginning in the 1980s. It was a virus that jumped out of um, uh, non-human primates into humans and then... Um, and it's an RNA virus, uh, just like the COVID virus is an RNA virus. Um, the HIV virus is actually simpler than COVID. The HIV virus has about, in its genetic code, about 10,000 base pairs. And the COVID virus has about 30,000 base pairs. Uh, so it is more complex uh, genetically. But um, so HIV has been engineered then. So its natural target is our T cells a specific subset of those called CD4 cells, whereas the COVID virus naturally targets cells that are in our um, uh, respiratory system, like our, our, our nasal sinuses and our lungs. So they have different targets. Um, the HIV virus then naturally targets T cells. And what's been done is molecular engineers have turned it from a, a pathogen that can actually kill you into a tool a tool that will insert whatever genetic code you want into another T cell, and then, but not itself be pathogenic. In other words, it can't cause disease anymore. And it's, it's a very useful tool. So it's being used now in a number of experimental cell and gene therapies. That's astonishing. Uh, viruses seem to be one of the most uh, interesting organisms or not organisms, I guess there's an argument about that, right? Whether, mm -hmm. whether they, whether they count as organisms, but they certainly have been all on all of our minds a lot of late. Yep. I, so, uh, switching gears a little bit, the first cancer targeted by a CAR therapy was a leukemia. And I noted that the same is true of the first molecularly targeted therapy. I talked mm -hmm. to few weeks ago to Dr. Charles Sawyers. Sure. Is there a reason for this? That is, is it the case that these kinds of therapies work really well with certain kinds of cancers, but are not likely to work in other kinds? Um, I've, I've sort of been encountering a lot of issues about solid tumors, and I'm, I'm just curious what you can maybe explain simply about what's going on there. Um, so, um, uh, if you take all the total uh, context of cancer in the United States, about 600,000 people die every year. Um, and so until COVID came along, it was the number one or two cause of death. Um, and and uh, of those, about 10% are due to blood cancers. Um, like Charles Sawyer's talked about was, in his case, it was chronic myelogenous leukemia, CML. And there's many different kinds of blood cancers that add up to that 10%. The other 90% of deaths are the more common cancer deaths are due to things like lung cancer, breast cancer, and, and, and so on. And um, so they all are caused in general by derangements in the DNA of the cancer cell. So then that can be due to environmental things like smoking or sun exposure in the case of melanoma, or it can be due to... Uh, um, viruses, about 10% or 15% of viruses like cervical cancer and um, Epstein-Barr virus cause various kinds of cancer. So, but they all work through the DNA of, of the cell, of our, our own cells. Um, so 
um, all both kinds of therapies. What Dr. Sawyer's developed, and he'll talk about, you know, is a molecularly targeted, you know, therapy that doesn't have the side effects of chemotherapy, and it targets one of the mutations in the cell that the CML cell is called a driver. It needs to stay alive and grow and thrive. Um, and there are the similar and similar drugs like that in solid tumors. Um, they, in the case of CML, they work spectacularly well. Um, and many patients live for years and some now appear to be cured from that. Um, in solid tumors, they work spectacularly well, but usually for about six months. And then they come back. And that's right now the central thrust of research is finding out why. And the answer at, at one level is just the solid cancers are more complex. So there's data from where people have been followed longitudinally, meaning if you take a smoker who you know is at risk of getting cancer or people have familial histories of, say, colon cancer, you can show that it takes, and sometimes uh, over a decade from the first cell that you, mutation that you see until it shows up as a cancer. Whereas in leukemia, it's much shorter many times, and there are sometimes just one or two mutations. They're called gatekeeper mutations, and you can go from being completely healthy to having lethal you know, which is very rapidly lethal leukemia in just a few months. So, um, so it's a really, it's, it's, they're, so they're different. One cancer is more complex than the other, but actually leukemia can kill you much more rapidly than almost all other cancers. So it's not, you know, how, how deadly they are, but it's the molecular complexity. And therefore, not surprisingly, the therapies are going to be more complex in solid tumors than in so-called blood cancer or liquid tumors. Okay, okay. Uh, but there's no sort of in-principle reason to imagine that the kinds of approaches being taken with both molecular, molecularly targeted and immunotherapies couldn't, with enough time and enough research, be developed to address these tumors? Or is that too optimistic to say at this point? I, you know, well, I am an optimist, but... Um, so uh, I, I think that, in fact, it's true that the solid cancers will be cured one by one with a combination of approaches that are being used now, molecularly targeted therapies and immunotherapies. And in fact, the field's making you know, really strong progress in that area. But it won't be like one magic bullet cures all cancer. Mm -hmm. I wish mm -hmm. that, that would be everyone mm -hmm. needs to take away from this is the cancer is a formidable foe. And that what works in one cancer, even if you look at blood cancer, the therapy of one blood cancer with an immune therapy has to be tweaked for to move into another kind of cancer. So, so that's the complexity of it. Um, and, but, but I think the principles are there and well-established by science that um, it, in fact, will be curable because we have amazing new diagnostics with all kinds of omics, you know, from sequencing the RNA and the proteins and the DNA of the cancer cell, because you got to know what the problem is before you can even have a hope of, you know, putting it, you know, curing it. I mean, um, you know, it was said by um, Richard Feynman, the physicist, you know, that unless you can take it apart and understand it, you can't and put it back together again. You have no way of ever solving a problem. Mm -hmm. Unless you get lucky and just throw a lot of darts and happen to hit, you know. And get <laughs> right, which is some of the way that I, I understand some chemo drugs actually emerged was, yeah. well, there's nothing else, let's throw something at it. I'm I've been struck so often in the course of planning this conference that uh, it would have been really nice if we had not called something cancer, that is, if we hadn't gathered all these things together into one bag and put one label on the outside of it, because it does leave us, the lay public, feeling like, well, for God's sakes, they know what cancer is. Why can't they just cure yeah. it? When, yeah. in fact, it just, in a way, it happens to have been a convenient catch-all term, right, for yeah. things that have sort of almost nothing to do with each other besides rampant cell growth. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and so it's an oversimplification that um, leads people, and this is especially true um, with, you know, very educated people. Our Congress and so on thinks that 
you know, when they when they first described the sequencing of the genome, they said in 10 years, <laughs> we'll cure cancer. And yes. that was grossly overstated. And it was, you know, so we need to always be cognizant that it's um, uh, it's a major problem. And the older people get the you know, it turns out the more your chances of getting cancer are. So because now people are right. living longer, there is more people with cancer and. Right. We need to have research to understand and, and make it a, a final solution of really having comprehensive therapies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I, this is kind of a pet question that I want to ask you, which is about uh, some recent research that I understand is coming out about gut microbes. Um, and just a quote from one of the articles I found, the study may provide a new understanding of why immunotherapy a treatment for cancer that helps amplify the body's immune response works in some cases, but not in others. Uh, do you have anything to say about this <laughs> research? I mean, we're all we're all fascinated by the gut microbe right now, right? Yeah, it's it, to me a completely astonishing um, finding uh, that uh, you know the what you eat and what's the, actually microbes are not just in the gut but also in your skin. So you have a skin microbiome, mm-hmm. you have a yes. you have a microbiome in your gut and mouth and. You know, we know that in this country, uh, 10 to 20 percent of people get autoimmune diseases where the immune system is jacked up um, and other people have underactive immune systems. And now it's turning out that, you know, everyone had thought that a lot of that was just genetics of what you were born with. But in fact, it may begin just with mother's milk and what your first bacteria are um, that bias your immune system to either be in some cases, perfectly attuned to understanding what, you know, the immune system evolved, as we mentioned, to target bacteria and viruses. And, but sometimes it's overactive or sometimes it's underactive. Now, there's emerging data that some people who get cancer, you know, they have underactive immune systems and don't cull out early stage tumors. So it's, it is now being more and more accepted that the immune system can actually sometimes you know, uh, find an early tumor and get rid of it before you ever even know you have it. And so there are there are researchers now looking at could we reinforce our immune system with changing our microbiome? And, and now, as, as you just mentioned, it turns out that when you study people who have really good responses to certain immunotherapies or really, unfortunately, they're duds and nothing happens, you find that the microbiome may be part of that reason. So it's it's really a, a, just as I mentioned a complex issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thanks, thanks for explaining it. I wonder if we shouldn't talk a little bit about uh, something that you experienced with those first miraculous uh, patients. This CRS storm that the body endures when CAR T is working well. And one thing I'm just curious about uh, is is that hard on the body long term, even if it's uh, miraculous, also. Okay, so um, CRS is, means cytokine release syndrome, and um, it, you know, I, um, it, it was initially written about, it was called, before CAR T cells came around, um, it was called uh, like uh, an influenza-like syndrome. So physicians would see someone... Um, uh, and it would, they would feel like they had the flu, you know, and they would have a fever, but um, there would be no uh, bacteria or virus to explain that. So fever in the context of having infections, a good thing. And, you know, it means your immune system's responding. And then, and then that actually correlates with uh, you clearing the infection. Um, so they didn't understand what caused that, quote, influenza syndrome until, um, you know, the early 1990s when molecular biology allowed the identification of so-called cytokines. And there are literally, um, there's more than 30 or 40 different cytokines have now been found that the immune system makes. And cytokines are like hormones, mean they act at a distance. Um, But instead of acting on your endocrine system, which is what hormones do, cytokines act on the uh, immune system and can cause um, inflammation, fever, they can also coordinate how our immune system's working. And 
an exaggerated uh, cytokine response system can then cause more inflammation than you need, and then actually you get tissue damage. So now, so that's what what they were first called it was influenza syndrome. Then, um, when our first CAR T cell patients were treated, they got fevers of 104 to 106 degrees. It was incredible, and we thought they were infected, um, but it turned out they weren't. And then we later got uh, blood measurements that showed they had sky high, literally the cytokines in the blood were thousands of times higher than normal. Um, and and, um, and it, um, it would last for about a week and then go away. And in answer to your direct question about that, it actually then leaves no permanent damage. Um, and in fact, um, it, only, it turns out this, this effect of the cytokine release syndrome with CAR T cells is actually a good thing. It happens in the people who are responding and who mm-hmm. end up having the tumor eradicated. And unfortunately, the people who have no fever or are of this influenza-like syndrome, no inflammation, they oftentimes are the ones who still have cancer at the end of this. Um, okay. So we now know that this CRS, in part, is it's what's called an on-target effect. It means the cancer is being killed and the immune system is hyperactivated. So no, no normal infection ever really gives you what we have seen, which is, I mean, fevers of 106 degrees and higher. So we now know how to treat that. Um, and, um, and so it was a new syndrome in medicine, this very high fever correlating with the, the eradication of a cancer. That's so, amazing success. Yeah, I mean, literally now our patients will smile when they first start to get to a fever because they know oh. That, that, you know, they have to sign a consent form where we say one of the side effects is you're going to maybe have the highest fever in your life. And I can tell you an example. I had one of my first patients where I, you know, while the patient was having this fever, he was actually a psychiatrist himself. And he had leukemia in his 40s. And he had very high fever. And the nurses came in, took his fever, and it said 106 degrees. And I said, no way. And they threw the thermometer away, thermometer away, electronic thermometer, and got a new one, retook his temperature. And again, it was the same thing. It was over 106. And so then they put him on a cooling blanket and, you know, he got better. But um, it was, we had never seen anything like it. It was astonishing. And uh, um, and now, um, now we know a lot about it and how to prevent it. We don't let it get out of control like that anymore. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. but that's how it was in the early days. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so we're going to switch gears now. Uh, thanks for that really great uh, approach, really great introduction to your to your work. And I know we're just skimming over the surface mm-hmm. of it. Um, so I want to turn now to your own development as a, as a thinker. So for those would-be researchers out there, those young, young scientists who are out there, how did you come to be the kind of questioner that you are? For instance, what were you interested in when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's an interesting, um, you know, I grew up just before the uh, uh, revolution in computers. Um, and uh, so I still was using slide rules in high school and college. And um, and I was interested in all kinds of things. I think that's one um, uh, message to people in high school. When I was in high school, I mean, when I was in junior high, I wanted to be a professional athlete. And then in high school, oh. I was on the football team, the basketball team. I was also head of the calculus group and, and um, you know, club. And um, I thought I would, my dad was an engineer, a chemical engineer, and I thought that's what I would be. And so from high school, I got accepted into Stanford and I thought I was going to be a chemical engineer. And then uh, that was 1971, the Vietnam War happened, was ongoing actually, and they had a system back then, a random draft lottery, and I had a low number where I had to go into the military. Um, and so I ended up being, um, you know, uh, going to the Naval Academy, um, basically, so I wouldn't have to go in as an enlisted person into what back then was the Vietnam War and the rice patties and so on. And, and so there, uh, I found out they had a pre-med program at, the, at Annapolis, and I 
found out I was interested in biology, actually, um, just as much as chemistry. So I took some biology courses and ended up just being fascinated by it in, the, in that way until today, this very day now, 40 years later, 45 years later. And um, so so that's, you know, I, th- I thought I was interested in engineering and then uh, and then became biology and then the, me- the marriage between biology and medicine. And and then, you know, cancer was not the initial thing I was interested in. It was how the immune system worked. You know, my mother had had uh, autoimmune disease and a lot of my two daughters have autoimmune disease. So lupus and arthritis. So I was interested in overactive immune systems. And then and so I worked for about 10 years on how to turn off the immune system and autoimmune disease. And then, you know, I learned some really interesting things about how to modify the immune system. And then, um, you know, as you mentioned, my wife got cancer um, at the very young age of 41. And so I began working instead of just on turning off the immune system on how to turn it on. And, and so, you know, uh, I gave a TED talk and talk about in there about how, you know, you can't plan your career really, microplan it. What you need to do is kind of follow your instincts. And, and as I said, I, you take forks on the road. And so I had to initially go from being an engineer at Stanford to going into the military, spending 20 years studying HIV and, and, then, and then into cancer. And I, there's common themes in all of those. But I think if people, you know, clearly now, it won't be like my dad started one job and then retired in that very same job. I think most of your listeners now will have several basic careers within their own, uh, you know, before they ever retire. And, yeah. you know, so you got to follow what you're interested in. And um, I've yeah. been privileged on being able to do that. Well, privileged and, and diligent and dedicated, I would add. Uh, so I'm amazed by how many scientists that I meet, both my own colleagues and then also people I've been interviewing for this podcast, who say, you know, I wasn't really very good at my first science uh, <laughs> class, but I was really captivated, so I kept at it. Were you always successful in your studies? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, what I was was, I think, persistent. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, some of the most satisfying things came after I had to really work really hard at something to really understand it or make it work. And I, mm-hmm. that to me gave a very big positive feedback. Um, and so in science, um, you know, I mean, we, we all oftentimes talks about, you know, professional athletes and whether they shoot three pointers or, uh, or, or they uh, play baseball, you know, they're lucky to be successful one out of three times. And so they fail two out of three times and um, they have to get used to that. And in science with um, it's you have to get used to having a lot of your best ideas just don't work and you have to not get discouraged. And but then when you do have one that works out, it's it's amazingly gratifying. And then and that keeps you going, you know, the experiments that work. And so I think that's one important part about it. And the other part is probably the hardest part about science is sometimes you have to quit. Sometimes your pet hypothesis just isn't true or you don't have the technology to actually really test it. And so you have to know it's time to let go and do something else, answer, you know, ask some other question. So that's, that's kind of like an art, I think, of understanding because some people will go really deep into something and spend decades on one single thing and then sometimes fail or sometimes succeed. And others are, are going to, you know, uh, have less uh, persistence at it and maybe ask more questions. And, and that's just a style issue with different people. Mm-hmm. As you talk about this, I wonder if you can point to experiences that you had where maybe you were, uh, maybe you encountered an obstacle, or maybe something was just really hard for you to study, but you you um, overcame that impediment, or, and you and you kept going from frustrated to curious rather than abandoning out of frustration. Can you think about times when that when that happened for you and? that you sort of look back on now and say, boy, I, I had a growth spurt there. That might be too specific a question, yeah. but. I mean, so I'll say two things. So one is sometimes just playing, you do enough experiments and luck. 
I mean, if, and you know, there's all, all the whole quote about, you know, if you get a million typewriters, a million monkeys, one of them will eventually make Shakespeare. And um, so if you do that, one of the arts of science is um, following up on the unexpected findings. That's uh, oftentimes where the best and most interesting things will be rather than things that are kind of uh, more um, just incremental findings. So that's one lesson. Um, the other is, yeah, I mean, I had um, many years of giving where we tried to make T cells work, both for HIV and for cancer. And, and it turned out, then we hit this home run in 2010, where uh, for the first time we had cytokine release syndrome and then leukemia melting away. And it turned out that was some small technical, they seemingly small technical details in how we grew the T cells and how we did the wow. genetic engineering. And, but for someone looking at it from a distance, they just say, well, heck, you know, that's just, if they were looking at it, they'd say your chances of this working because there's many people in the past where it failed, they would say, that's, that's futile, go and do something else. And in fact, I was unable to get government funding to do the trial that I mentioned in 2010 that led to the, you know, the CAR T cells working now in a really striking way because it had failed so many times. Science, which is basically at the peer review level, often very conservative, you know, they, they don't like to do risk taking in giving out grants. So my, I was given, you know, failing grades on, on the studies. I had lots of other grants from the National Cancer Institute and, and the you know, the grants for my HIV research. But for the one I wanted the most, which is the one that worked in leukemia, I never got government funding until after it worked. Amazing. I'm really struck by how many of you with whom I've had conversations are really deeply humble people, despite having made really transformative um, advances in, in medical research. And I'm struck by how much confidence you nevertheless have to have in order to say, no, we're, we're going to keep on with this. I, I believe there's something here. I mean, do you do you feel that balance in your own life? Oh, yeah. I mean, my wife would tell you. I mean, you have to have a long-term attention span. And, and then there's a difference that is somewhat subtle but really important. The difference, and I mentioned that parenthetically, which is the difference between stubbornness and persistence. Um, so, um, because most of the experiments don't work and it was maybe only after the 10th different way I tried that the CAR T cells worked. So that was persistence at it. Stubbornness would be, you know, banging Mm -hmm. your head against the wall in the same place and not Mm -hmm. trying some other iteration. I mean, in both cases, you have to have a long-term attention span, but you want to make sure that you don't just perseverate, but that in fact you try different approaches. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, so I think that's one characteristic with, um, uh, you know, scientists that way is that they have to have that persistence. Hmm. Uh, thanks for using the word perseverate. If you're in high school and you don't know that word, look it up right now. It's a great um, SAT <laughs> word. Um, so as I noted in my intro, one of your colleagues emphasized your amazing ability uh, for improvisational thinking, which we know is about a lot of uh, facility and flexibility and no doubt uh, knowledge of a number of different fields. How, how did you come to be that person? Because clearly your colleagues see you as more that way than others in their circle of research. Yeah, so I think there there is some... I mentioned my background was not by design, but I I had a bunch of unusual twists so that I got exposed to some very different, uh, you know, from engineering sciences to, you know, and then just hard math science stuff to I was in the military for 20 years. And there's a certain thing there where it turned to be very valuable in large-scale analysis of medical therapies, including the current vaccines that are ongoing. Um, and, um, but I think part of it also could be maybe ADD. Um, I, um, I like to think about different, a lot of different things at once. My wife is 
very much a linear thinker. She she will stay on the one simple thing. What and not being simple, but just and and I like to do several things at once usually. And I so I, I don't know if that part of it is whether that's good or bad, but it's what it is with me. Mm. I mean, there are some really amazing stories. For instance, the account of the drug that you. Um, were able to make the connections that would actually address cytokine release syndrome, right? Which turns out to be an arthritis drug. I mean, that's, I have to tell you, um, there's a little part of me that's sad when I hear that story. And it's because, and please share it if you'd like, uh, it feels like such a case of serendipity or kismet that it feels like, well, I don't want there to be any serendipity or kismet in research, right? I don't want it to have to be the case that Carl June is in the room and he has a daughter who has arthritis and so knows about a drug that just turns out to do this amazing thing that we just happen to need. Wow, that's just, I don't like that. (laughs) I'll tell you, that story is, for me, it's whether it's serendipity or miracle. Um, It was this most amazing thing. So I mentioned my mother had autoimmune disease. My daughter, who was at Harvard at the time, she's now a graduate student in uh, psychology. But anyway, uh, she had arthritis and she had it on onset at age six. And um, so and I you know, was uh, trained in oncology and immunology. So like most people, you know, would want to watch out for new drugs that their kid might need. So my, my, my daughter was on FDA approved drugs for her arthritis. And um, then I uh, was president of the Clinical Immunology Society in 2008 to 2009. And that's a group that has uh, a lot of people under one tent. Some of them study hyperactive immune systems like arthritis and others study, you know, people without an immune system like AIDS or people with cancer. And so they're all talking to each other. And I gave the presidential award to a professor, Tada Kishimoto, who was in um, Osaka, Japan, who had invented a drug uh, that had just gotten approved for the kind of arthritis my daughter gave. And um, so it was a very special moment to me. Um, And that was 2009. And then, um, you know, we watched... um, our first patients get this very high fever of 106 degrees. And then we finally found out that the, uh, the reason they were getting this very high fever was a, a molecule called interleukin-6, one of these cytokines that was thousands of fold elevated. And um, so uh, when Emily Whitehead, the first pediatric patient we treated, she had 106, 107 degree fever and was literally dying. Uh, when we got her results back with this very high level, I was um, able to say to the doctors, and because I'm not a pediatrician, so I called the pediatricians and said, why don't you try this drug called tocilizumab, which is an anti-IL-6 drug? And they got it approved. The parents said yes right away. And literally the doc, the pediatrician, Stephen Grupp, when he went into the intensive care unit to give it to her, the uh, uh, intensive care physicians in there who had never heard of that drug said, you're a cowboy. What are you giving that? <laughs> and then it was miraculous. I mean, within hours, she woke up from a coma and she's, you know, mm. eight, eight, uh, it's now eight years later. So and then it became FDA approved for that use. Um, so mm. it literally saved car T cells wouldn't be around if it hadn't have been for the fact that my daughter had had arthritis um, because I wouldn't have known about it, you know, because of something that right. rheumatologists right. know about, not oncologists. And then as a funny story right. to finish, my daughter then in the senior year of her science class at Harvard, uh, the professor, uh, it was called the history of science. And um, he gave a, it had been in the New York times, the story I just told you. <laughs> and, um, he gave a talk about that. And, you know, about how rapidly not science knowing. is changing and not knowing that my daughter's in the crowd. So afterwards, my daughter goes up and says, I'm the one with arthritis. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. And and yet it just uh, for me is is painful because it's it's so, so much a result of you being what you are. So I guess this really does segue nicely into uh, the other thing that I 
want to explore with you a little bit, which is uh, science and its ethical implications. And, and as I was researching you, it really did strike me that um, there's a way in which serendipity is for me an ethical question. And my question is, how do we reduce it? That is, yeah. how do we more, uh, uh, how do we more systematically do what you did because you happen to have this crazy combination of expertises. I've been talking with a couple of folks who have been very involved in creating databases of, uh, you know, that enable cancer research to go on more efficiently because we, you know, we gather all the kinds of possible information and therefore can know that this might work or this would be a fruitful avenue to try a new drug. But knowing about an arthritis drug is not going to be in that database, right? I mean, like, how do we fix this, Dr. June? I'm, yeah. I'm actually, I've been surprised at how upset I've been by this story because it's obviously the happy story, yeah. but it made me sad in some way. So unfortunately, I think there are many things in history that without some element of luck or serendipity, yeah. They would have never had want of a nail. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you can go through battles and so on. There are all kinds of stories about how one side won literally because of some piece of luck. And in my case, I'm pretty sure CAR T cells would not have happened without that. They would have been, I can tell you, if one pediatric patient dies on a trial, then yeah. that thing will be abandoned. Yeah. The pharmaceutical industry will not go back. And so, um, yeah. so then how do you um, eliminate? So chances in some ways good because it iterates things that you wouldn't think of. I mean, um, and gives you, you, you ask permutations you wouldn't have thought of. So if you only think of what you can think of in linear ways. Now, um, so the array, a way around it is what you're getting to, which is an all-encompassing database and, and it's so multidimensional, you know, if, and then you need artificial intelligence to be able to query all the things and then find ultimate answers. And so that's where we're headed for. But right now, drug discovery, and I can give you many examples within the cancer field, is been based on a lot of times serendipitous uh, observation. I mean, probably the most famous to high school science people is Alexander Fleming. I mean, he was, you know, in, in, uh, in the 1920s, uh, had a petri dish and, you know, he had fungus growing and he noticed a clear spot and it happened. he said, well, why is it clear here? And it turned out a mold had landed from his lab onto his petri dish of the bacteria, streptococcus, and it was mm. penicillin mm. because he looked at that clear spot. He found penicillin. That's not what he started his experiment for. And that right. led to, that was just before the world war one. And, um, you know, that whole field of antibiotics was luck. Right. And, and, you know. And, and also, obviously, though, he had been trained in such a way that he knew to pay attention. Yeah. And I'll tell you, though, not everyone, unfortunately, science doesn't always reward that. I mean, science rewards oftentimes following more of the beaten path and looking for incremental things and not taking chances uh, like following some unexpected thing so that is i think the big message to audiences you know yeah i think science needs to be part of what i call i mean some of those incremental things like uh getting a, if you, a, a basketball analogy having a layup but other times you need to be shooting for three pointers mm-hmm mm-hmm mm. So as I said, um, this uh, the Nobel Conference really is an exploration of science and its ethical implications. And um, obviously, those of you who work in m medical research know that everything that you do has ethical implications and indeed, um, no doubt, ethical commitments lead you to, into that work. And, you know, serendipity might be a funny ethical concept or ethical topic. But one, one thing that I was struck by as I was reading um, about your work is that something many people are very concerned about in other arenas right now is um, whether and how genetic engineering should go on. And so, for instance, um, I do a lot of work on food, and there's been much criticism of genetic engineering of foods. And it doesn't just sort of stop at saying, don't splice a fish gene into a tomato. They say, don't be doing any splicing at all. It's a problem in principle, not just a problem in this particular practice. Or a few years ago, the Nobel Conference was about reproductive technology. And uh, we had a researcher working on CRISPR, and he, of course, 
you know, that, that technology is used in ways that make um, many people nervous because of its capacity to alter not just this person's life, but any lives that might come afterwards, right? And I'm wondering, is, has CAR-T therapy come under criticism because of the ways it's using genetically engineered cells, or is it, um, is it not doing so, and is it because it's killing cancer, and who's going to find fault with that? Well, okay, so the science is very well established. Um, I mean, we have these tools that I mentioned, like the viral mm -hmm. vectors like HIV. And so, and that's, that didn't just happen overnight. There's been 30 years of research mm -hmm. that led to that field. And, um, and it has been, you know, there's a Silomar conference, as you know, in the 70s about genetic engineering. And it was decided then you shouldn't do germline, which is what it is, which you mentioned if you what work mm -hmm. could be affecting yep. our fetuses CRISPR. and so on and, and CRISPR and fetuses. And um, but when the, it was decided by many groups, ethicists as well as uh, scientists, that the safest place to start is in a Petri dish. So uh, what we do with CAR T cells is we take them out of the patient's body, expose them to the genetic engineering in the Petri dish and then return them back to the patient. So it's under a very controlled situation. And that's very different than injecting some uh, you know, virus that might make a Frankenstein into the body and you don't know exactly where it's gonna go. Now, eventually we're gonna be able to do that, I think. You have to have really good tools. You know, They have to not hit targets other than what you want. So right now, our, our, our you know, we are, for instance, we have a very different regulatory landscape because we're using genetic engineering with CAR T cells. So the FDA asked us to follow each of our patients for 15 years to make sure, you know, there we get a registry and that there's not some kind of untold long-term consequence. Now, other therapies aren't held to that standard. And that's a whole long ethical discussion that I think we should have. Um, you know, people who get chemotherapy and then other new kinds of therapies don't have to do a 15-year follow-up. And and so anyway, that's right now it's um, more expensive to do that 15-year follow-up. But, you know, the ethics of what we're trying to do is actually, you know, actually cure patients' tumors. And we think that if you have a big effect on the, the cancer or the disease you're after, that um, it, it's worth it if it costs more money, if it's actually curative. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks. That's a really helpful answer. And especially that distinction between uh, a genetic engineering of a, of a cell outside of the body um, to enable it to operate as a certain kind of tool. It does lead to the next question, though, which is, uh, I can imagine someone hearing the expression living drug and thinking, well, that sounds scary. That is, do we think that modified T cells in year 15 plus one could suddenly pose a, an unexpected danger? Or is it the case that really, no, these cells are modified to identify that one uh, cancer uh, modification and they're not gonna just like go rogue and suddenly start deciding that other things are targets? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Predict the future, please. Yes. Yeah, so, so the the answer is until we have data, we don't know. Okay. So uh -huh. we need to have follow them to fifteen years plus one day and see, and then and and we'll eventually get better and better confidence on what the answer real answer is. What I can tell you from theoretic uh, considerations are that when you uh, jack up the immune system, which is you know what we're doing with for the leukemia and other cancer therapies. The, the major side effect I anticipate is autoimmune disease. So we need to see if that happens and and uh, is it a real concern or not. Right now, if people have auto active autoimmune disease, they're not allowed to get our therapy. So we need to find out, can it be given safely to people with known autoimmune disease? And then, um, and it's only by following people. And that's a good thing about our FDA policy is, is we're going to learn the answer. It won't be... Uh, some unknown, you know, hand waving, which is not what we need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Um, one thing I thought about, and this is a, I don't necessarily know that you have anything to say about this, but I was, I'm struck as I read descriptions of cancer and the ways in which treatments work, 
How, what do you think about the ways in which we make and the ways in which we describe treatments? Uh, so, for instance, we often use language of soldiers and killing and so on, um, serial killers. Um, does that matter? Should we be trying to think about different ways to describe this, or is that exactly the language that we ought to be using? Because let's face it, it's a deadly disease and it needs to be killed. Well, I, I think there's a couple of layers there to that question of yours. Um, uh, you know, precision is important, but it depends on, I, I, you know, the the target audience and their education. So I'll give an example. Um, uh, because most people, you know, the immune system is complex even to scientists. The nomenclature is horrible. It's a waste. It's, it's really a... A quagmire. So when, when our first reports of our first pediatric patients came out, um, it was in the New York Times and it was this thing that people hadn't heard of at that point, which is, you know, a genetically modified serial killer T cell um, that could live in your body and then do these things that no drugs had done before. And um, so uh, it was described, there's, there was a cartoon in the New York Times showing five steps and one of them was, um, you know, taking the body, your T cells from your body. And then it said using uh, HIV virus, you know, make the car T cell and then infuse it back. So then literally the father of our first patient, Emily Whitehead, his father got emails. And actually um, they had a, a Facebook page on this and all this, but some person posted to him and said and posted a separate thread saying, um, you know, here they cured Emily Whitehead of this leukemia with HIV. You know, my mother has pancreatic cancer. Would you inject her with HIV? And they didn't understand the difference between the, you know, the gutted out virus that's a tool versus the virus that causes disease. And I, so you think that's not just going to not happen? You know, so that points to education and, and what do you call it? But if you'll recall, just a few months ago, at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, our president was talking about ingesting hydroxychloroquine, a non-proven therapy that actually hasn't worked. And someone else took basically bleach and killed themselves. And killed themselves. Yeah. With, you know, it was the chemical, it, looked, it said that on the label, but it also, it was, uh, it, was it killed them. Exactly. So the lay so public... It's really a huge uh, responsibility of educating them. And, and unfortunately, most people don't have a lot of you know, uh, knowledge in this area of genetic engineering. Right, right. And so, you know, perhaps my modified question should be, and I don't expect you to answer this one at all, but should be, how do we uh, work at those levels between technical scientists and the lay public to create better mechanisms for coming to understand because <clears throat> yes, many newspapers mm -hmm. get that press release, <clears throat> pardon me, and turn it into, yes, killer, killer HIV cells miraculously yeah. attack leukemia. Yeah. So I think, um, where science is, you know, where we failed is, is not enough education in the public and, you know, unfortunately, some of it's not as, uh, you know, to most people, it's not as interesting until they have someone, a loved one who has cancer. They, you know, right. the attention span it takes to get the details and, and appreciate, you know, so you can tell the difference between some shyster who is talking about, you know, and selling you snake oil versus something that's based on really solid science. And so... We need really to work on educating at the high school level and below it, you know, more about science and medicine so that people can make real judgments or at least mm -hmm. know where to look for good information. Mm -hmm. And arguably that's our responsibility as uh, citizens yes. of the world. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that might be a great point at which to segue into a final question, which is uh, if you had an audience that was listening and, <laughs> uh, what would you, who would that audience be and what would you like to tell them if you knew they were listening and would do something about it? Um, you know, I think everyone basically who is listening uh, is, has, has someone, whether it's a loved one or a friend that, that's had cancer. Um, and, and so they understand the importance of the problem. And I think the biggest message is they understand that we need uh, 
irregardless of political persuasion and so on, that we need ongoing research so that, um, you know, it's a scourge that can be solved. Just like, you know, when at, a lot of people don't know that in 1900, the number one cause of death was an infection, tuberculosis mm. in the United mm. States. And now a lot of people have never even heard of it. And then in the 1950s, thanks to tobacco and so on, the number one cause of death became cancer. And then, you know, and well, it was heart disease and then and now it's cancer. So, you know, we've controlled a lot of heart disease with really good research against. Um, and but the cancer part is now the, the real scourge that we have. And so we need to have uh, research on that. And they need to tell the people in Congress that research should be an important priority. And it's for many years been cut back and back and back. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it's a real danger, even now with COVID, a lot of research money will be devoted into something really important. But that, you know, the fear I have is it may uh, slow down, you know, the progress and momentum we have in cancer. With cancer, yes. And that's a really, that's a really good cautionary tale. Thank you. And thank you very much for spending time with me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So thanks, Dr. Carl June, for joining me on ScienceWise. We look forward to your talk in October. Thank you, and I look forward to attending virtually. <laughs> Safely. <laughs> Bye.